Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm Richard Walensky, and we're talking about books, about theater, about film, about television, and from time to time, even about KPFA, Pacifica Radio. Mary Higgins Clark, who died on January 31, 2020, at the age of 92, was the best-selling author of 51 books, most of them suspense novels featuring women in jeopardy, with four theatrical films and over 30 other books adapted for television. My Probabilities co-host, Richard A. Lupoff, and I had a chance to interview Mary Higgins Clark on May 24, 1989, while she was on tour for her 13th novel, While My Pretty One Sleeps. The interview was conducted in her San Francisco hotel room. Mary Higgins Clark, did you read a lot of mysteries up until the time you started writing? Always. I cut my teeth on mysteries, Richard. When I was a little kid, when the other kids were rushing for the cartoons, I was reading the Justice Story, which came out every Sunday. And it would start something like, on October 23rd, 17-year-old so-and-so took her poodle out for a walk. An hour later, he came back with the leash trailing and her battered body, you know. At eight years old, I was eating this stuff up. And I would keep my hand over the solution because, you know, they would do the step-by-step of the clues, and then the jury of his peers found him guilty and he was hanged by the neck, or he was acquitted, did justice triumph. So from the time I was a little kid, I was fascinated by mystery, crime, suspense, and it was in my, uh, well, it was 14 years ago, when I was in my 40s, that uh, early 40s, I started writing it. Did you read, when you were in your 20s, did you read um, any of the well-known authors? Josephine Tate, Raymond Chandler, Cornell Woolrich, uh, oh gosh, all the Sherlock Holmes, Edgar Allan Poe. I mean, I think one of the first things I did in school was put a new ending onto the cast of Amandalada. So there we are. (laughs) What did you do to it? Well, we had to put a solution on. If you'll remember, he's all blocked up in Mm -hmm. the thing. And it starts out, yes, I killed him. I killed him a long 50 years ago. And I did that when I was 10. And he was messing around with my wife was the idea. (laughs) (laughs) Before you became a writer, you had a number of different jobs. Uh, you, You married, your husband passed away, and you began getting up at five in the morning writing and then going to work. Is this correct? Yeah. Well, I actually, as soon as I got married, I said, I've got to learn how to be a professional writer. And my husband said, sure, if you want to take courses, go ahead. But at that time, I hadn't been to college. I'd done secretarial school. I'd been in, worked as an advertising secretary, as a Pan Am stewardess. And he said, honey, the only thing is that there are PhDs knocking their brains out trying to sell. He said, as long as you don't break your heart. He said, look at it this way. Some women bowl, you write. <laughs> I said, well, let's see what happens. And the very first story I wrote in that very first class 
The professor said, this is a professional story this will sell. Well, it did six years later and after 40 rejection slips. But then I did start selling short stories. And I would call Warren's office and say to his secretary, will you kindly tell him Mary Higgins Clark is on the phone? <laughs> and that was the signal that, you know, somebody had bought another story for 100 bucks. That first story, where did it finally sell? It sold to Extension Magazine, which is a magazine in Chicago. And I have that letter of acceptance framed uh, in my apartment in New York with a little vigil light under, under it, uh, $100. <laughs> and it's funny, it was just before I had my fourth child and the heroine's name, and it was Carol. So the little baby girl became Carol. And she always said, thank God it wasn't Hepzibah, because I'd be Hepzibah right now. Your first novel was about George Washington. It's a very good story, I, and I own the rights to it, but I could not put it out. First of all, it I fell in love with him. I was doing a radio show. When Warren died, I started writing radio shows because I had five little kids to support, and you couldn't do it on the short story market, which incidentally had fallen apart in the mid-60s. So I started writing radio shows, and the first one was called Portrait of a Patriot, and it was something like, he was the tailor from Tennessee who became president of the United States. Do you know who he is? And then da, 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 the music and then the profile, you see. And every day a different patriot, someone who had achieved in government and science and arts, you know, whatever. So I did three on George Washington because, of course, he was president, he was the military leader, he was the head of the revolution, on and on we go. And I fell in love with the guy. I mean, did you know he was six feet five inches tall? You did. Well, you're one of the two. You and I. It's our secret. And he courted Martha at her estate, the White House. The Indians paid him their highest compliment. He rides his horse like an Indian. On and on we go. So that was why I decided nobody has treated this man fairly. I'm going to treat him fairly. And I did a biographical novel about him, which was published. But it was remained it as it came off the press. We now have four copies in the family, and the last one cost 130 bucks to get from a back bookstore. The kids said we'd all like to have a copy of The Bomb, Mary, but <laughs> I haven't got that many copies. Well, what prompted you to start writing suspense fiction then? Well, you see, at least Dear George had proven I could write a book. I thought I was a short story writer, and I said, okay, a a novel is 20 short stories back-to-back -back with some sort of link between them. And that was the way I psyched myself to do George. And I thought, now I would like to write a book that will sell. And one of the hot tips I give to would-be writers is look at your bookshelves. See what is on them. If you're reading science fiction, the odds are science fiction is your bag. If you're reading romance novels, then get yourself a girly in a romance novel, you see. I found I was reading suspense and had been all my life. And I cannot balance a checkbook, but I thought, I wonder if I could write a suspense novel. And that became Where Are the Children, which is now in the 44th printing. This is Dick Lupoff. In 20th century crime and mystery writers, Ed Hock uh, does a very, very complimentary essay about you. And he suggests that Where Are the Children was based on a real case, the Alice Crimmins case. Is, is this true? Well, I never take the whole case and do it. I go to a lot of criminal trials. But you see, if you want to write a successful story, do something that's of general interest to everybody. Missing children everyone cares about. You know, a child falls down the well, the whole world is alerted. They care, even though, let's face it, hundreds of thousands of children are dying of starvation. But when you pinpoint one, 
I had been raised on the Lindbergh baby because when I was a little kid, that baby had disappeared. And our summer home was in Silver Beach, uh, a little on the tip of Long Island in the Bronx, and uh, Long Island Sound. And whenever we passed St. Raymond Cemetery, my father never failed to say, and there, my dear, under that table is where the note for that poor little baby was left. So it was always there. So I thought, missing children, I'm going to do a kidnapped child. And then Alice Crimmins at that time was on trial for murdering her children. She had the face of an angel. She was gorgeous. To look at her, you would put her in a Madonna's outfit. And she was not accused of going out dancing and maybe the house burned down. She was accused of murdering them. I don't know whether she did or not, but I took someone with the face of an angel who had been found guilty in the past of murdering her two children. And seven years later, the children of her second marriage disappear. Mm -hmm. So I just took the idea of, it was so incongruous to look at this lady and say, she, she killed a three-year-old and a five-year-old, her own, her flesh and blood. You just couldn't put it together. I don't know whether she did it or not, but yes, that was the tie-in of that story. The other aspect of the story uh, concerns the fact that you give away who the murderer is very early on, but it's still a suspense novel. That kind of veers away from the mystery idea and a little bit from your later books as well. Well, it's just how should the story be told? And it's not a case of who done it there and, and where are the children and several s subsequent books. It's a case of will he, in that case, throw the children out of that window into the ocean at 7 o'clock at high tide. And as it gets to be 5 o'clock and 6 o'clock and quarter of 7, hopefully you're getting nervous about it. Only I always use the multiple viewpoint except in one book, A Cry in the Night. And my editor, Michael Cordes, said this book has to be told only in her viewpoint. And I was trying it from different viewpoints, and I said, thank you, Michael, there we are. That's what I needed to hear. In this new book, While My Pretty One Sleeps, I hope you don't know who did it until close to the end. But in the next one, you may know right from the beginning. But you see, then you're saying, hopefully, to the young woman in danger, for God's sake, don't get in the car with him, don't meet him. Stay away from him, stupid, don't you see? He's trouble. So it depends on how the story should be told. You mentioned... Uh well, my pretty one sleeps the new one yes. with with the multiple viewpoint and the fact that different but you you think the reader doesn't catch on to who's the killer until near the end no some people do many people haven't it depends on what kind of how your mind works and what kind of a reader you are but still hopefully whether or not you you figure oh i think this one then you are still hopefully if that is a word i believe it is not concerned about whether or not he gets Neve. In fact, my wife read the book first, and she caught on very early. She's sitting there, sitting, we're sitting in bed. I was reading something else, and she's giving me an elbow in the ribs and chuckling. Ha ha! I caught her on page five. Uh -huh. I read the book. I didn't get it until the story was almost completely over. Question: This is something that Pat and I have discussed many times. We use the terms semi-jocularly: boy books and girl books. Mm -hmm. Do you write girl books? Is there such a thing? Well, I think that my when you write where the protagonist is usually a young woman, then I think you are skewing to the female audience. However, I do have many men who I think the wife started buying the book and then the man read it and liked it and started reading my other books. But I would say it certainly is maybe 60, 40 or 65, 35. Yeah, I believe that. 
I think that when you get a police procedural, a gumshoe, a tough detective, your audience might be a little more than male. But I don't write and say this is for a woman, but because of the circumstances, because of a woman in danger, from a woman's viewpoint as the main character, I think then, yeah, you probably, you are going uh, to it. But you see, I don't use explicit sexual violence in my books. So I'm on the reading list from age 12 on up, and I get lots of letters from young boys, you know, 12 and 13 and 14, about the books, saying that they like them. You think your readers are bright? Sure. I get interesting letters both from, you know, young and old. I think they're bright. I tr and I try to tell them a decent story, and the research is good. I'm absolutely accurate in research. And I never turn in a story, a book, until it's the best story I can tell. I never look at any of my books and say, gee, I wish I had done a little more with that character. By the time the book is in to the editor, and I've done any editing he wants, it's the best story I can tell. So if you don't like it, I'm sorry, you know? <laughs> <laughs> you, you mentioned that your editor is Michael Corda. What kind of suggestions, for example, on um, the latest novel, While My Pretty One Sleeps, what kind of suggestions did he make with a broad or very, very narrow change of word here? This one didn't need too much editing, but the editing that was in was absolutely vital. For example, the guy who was following Neve around with the idea of shooting her, I said, you know, it worries me a little bit. He looks kind of like the gang who, that couldn't shoot straight. And then Michael said, well, what it is is he was told to make it look like an accident and then was told, we don't care whether it's an accident or not, get her. So that explained why he was trying to get her in the park you must make it look like an accident. So that was a wonderful suggestion. And the very end of the book, and I don't want to give it away in case there are people who are rushing to the bookstores, he made a wonderful suggestion about the father. Because I said it looks a little bit too much like High Noon. He said the father would go in with his moral authority, unarmed. And it was a wonderful, wonderful suggestion. Made the book. So that's the kind of... Uh, now, in other ones, and Weep No More, My Lady, the last one, which is set right in Monterey, Michael called me. He always calls overnight when he gets a book. Mary, the book is wonderful. 99% there. Just come in for a few suggestions. The first one was rewrite it. <laughs> <laughs> but he always makes you feel so good. He makes you feel eight pages of single-space suggestions. But here again, he was absolutely right, because in that one I had had a mistrial. And everyone's referring to the former trial. He said, why was there a mistrial? Why is not the trial for Ted starting next week? Because otherwise you're stopping and looking back and saying, at the last trial, this one said this and this one said. He was absolutely I said, of course. So he's a wonderful editor. He became your editor when you signed this new deal, uh, a new $10 million deal, or had he been your editor long before that? He was my editor from the second book. The first book, Phyllis Gran, who was now publisher of... Putnam. She was my editor at Simon & Schuster. And two publishing houses had turned down Where Are the Children? Harper had turned it down, Harper and Rowe, and Doubleday because they said Children in Jeopardy might upset their women readers, even though it had gone to the top of the editorial board. And then Simon & Schuster, a lot of editors will take Friday off and stay home and read manuscripts. She was on her boat and she had her husband pull into shore and call my agent and say, we're buying that. And that was for $3,000. And that was the beginning of Simon and & Schuster. And then the second book, just as I was starting it, she went over to Putnam, and Aunt Michael became my editor and has been ever since. And that's, what, 14 years now. So Where Are the Children came out, and 
rushed to the top of the bestseller list. Not in hardcover. It did very, very, very well and was wonderfully reviewed. But it just missed the list. But in paperback, when it came out, it went to the top of the list. And I, I was astonished. I mean, I was absolutely floored. And the funny part of it is that a week before, I had gone with a friend to have my palm read by a psychic, and she said, I don't believe what I'm seeing. She said, you're going to be rich, you're going to be famous, you're going to be known all over the world. And I thought, I wonder what she's on. And then she said, you're going to live to be very old and die abroad. So at 80, I'm going to stop traveling. To get back to your new book, While My Pretty One Sleeps, you mentioned earlier that you do extensive research, and While My Pretty One Sleeps has a great deal of, of information in it about the fashion industry, particularly the New York City garment district. It was always there. My mother was the bridal buyer of B. Altman and Company. She never called it Altman's. None of the old girls did. She married at age 40 in 1925. And, of course, in those days, you quit. You know, it was an insult to your husband to work. It showed he couldn't support you. Times have changed a bit, yes? After my father died... And everything was so mortgaged because it was the Depression times and he was trying to save his business. So we had absolutely no money. But I was always well-dressed because Mother would go down Fifth Avenue to Bergdorf Goodman's or Saks and she'd pay $5 for a dress that had been 40 which was big dollars in those days. And I just always heard fashion. My aunt was the bridal buyer at McCreary's. And, you know, whenever my friends came in, they would do the thumb and finger test. Look at the hems, you know, turn the lining. Oh, Fran, that's a lovely dress. And Mother's looking at the lining the hem. And I, you say, Mother, will you knock off the thumb and finger test? <laughs> and then I worked on Saturdays when I was a kid in department stores buying Mattelas and Lord and Taylors for five bucks a day just so I could buy clothes. And then I wrote a radio show 12 years ago where I interviewed designers. So I think I come by the fashion world honestly. What was that radio show for? What station? It was a syndicated show. It was on 500 stations. It was called Women Today, and Lee Merriweather was the hostess. But I would take the microphone out and say, call me Lee. You know what that is, as though she was with them. And we took our microphone to Ann Fogarty's workshop on 7th Avenue. We took it to Victor Costa's workshop, you know, and Fashion Square, and on and on we go. So I really had a very strong sense of fashion. In the book, you have a uh, character, a designer, and you claim in the book that there are three main trends in fashion. The first was Dior, the second was Mary Quant, and the third was this Pacific Reef style in 1972 put out by this uh, your fictional uh, character. Uh, what was the real-life equivalent of that, the analog that you used? Well, the Pacific Reef I created. I am the designer of the Pacific Reef. But I remembered in 1947... I think I was the first one in the Bronx to wear the so-called new look. That was when I was working. I was a kid on Saturdays in Lord and & Taylor. And all of a sudden, that military look vanished because after the war and during the war, it was the broad shoulders, the brass buttons, skimpy skirts because you couldn't waste the material. And all of a sudden, he broke fashion with wraparound capes and the skirts were halfway down your leg and the lines were long and flowing and the padded shoulders disappeared. And I swear if you go back, it is so rich to read Vogue and W or Women's Wear Daily in the Times. One woman in California bought a long skirt and tripped on it getting off the bus and she sued Christian Dior. Can you believe it? The preachers came out and said that we should clothe the naked with that extra material that was sinful for women to use it. It was an uproar. 
and then that idiotic miniskirt. And you read the interviews with Mary Quant, and they're crazy. How did we fall for it? Uh, she said she was a little girl who never wanted to grow up, so that's why everyone should wear little girl clothes. And you see grandmothers with fat knees in those miniskirts, <laughs> and you look at those pictures. Well, they tried it two years ago. The designers ate those things, and the stores were loaded with them. Because it's great if you're 19 years old and have that slim, trim look that happens once in a lifetime. But when you see old ladies with those can-can skirts on, you know, they look as though they're paying off a bet. I chose those looks, because many looks like the Chanel look, they're traditional. You know, they're, they're classics. And then I chose my Pacific Reef look. You mentioned earlier that you do revisions based on Michael Corda's suggestions. You also mentioned that you don't turn in a book until it's absolutely the best you can do. Would you tell us a little bit about your working methods in terms of outlining, writing sketches, writing full drafts and revisions? Sure. I, when I start a, a, a book, an idea comes and it starts to grow and grow and grow and grow. Now, for example, this one I had given to New World Productions for ABC the idea uh, they wanted an idea for mini for a sorry a continuing series, and I did a dress designer whose father had been police commissioner and he was dead, but everyone came to Neve because they were so used to going to her father. Well, they very sensibly put Colombo back on instead, and they sent me home with Neve. But I thought I like her, but besides that, I like her father. I don't want Miles to be dead. You see, that's the joy of being a writer. You can resurrect people. You can dig them up or you can put them under at will. But I thought, suppose her mother is dead. And suppose, suppose, suppose. So that was the beginning of that story. And I get up at 6 o'clock in the morning. I make a cup of coffee. I say, there is a God because it's quiet. I live alone, but even so, the phone is always going. You know, four of the kids live very near me. My grandchildren come running in. Hey, Mimi, you got any pizza? <laughs> so I work, I start to work very early in the morning. I do biographies of all the people in the book, so I know them. But I have the beginning, the middle, and the end, the main events of the book. I certainly know where it's set, whether it's in San Francisco or New York. You know, if you don't know that, you're really in trouble, I think. But then what happens, it's as though you're watching the Nutcracker Suite, where the dolls come to life. Because in the beginning, I sort of am walking the characters through. You come in here, and you face the audience, and you say this, and then exit stage left. All of a sudden, the people take on flesh and blood, and they say things I didn't know they were going to say. They start to interact. A character walks out of a scene and says, I'll see you tomorrow, Mary. I don't belong in this scene. And I say, okay, great. See you later, pal. That's the joy of creativity. That's when writing is heaven. Did you know all along, for example, the relationship of Kitty, the woman who discovers the body, to, in the larger sense of the book, as well as the relationship of the publisher to, to the larger sense of the book? Well, yes, the idea, because I wanted Neve to have... I always give my girls very nice guys. I mean, congressmen, doctors, you know, publishers. I really am very, very kind. I wish I could bring a few of them home for all the single girls I know. But in this case, Charlie Haywood, who was president of, of Simon & Schuster last year, and now he's president of one of the divisions. But years ago, I met him, and he's young. I mean, he's much younger than I am. He was a salesman for another publishing house and I happened to be sitting next to him on the plane and he said oh you're a famous author he said I just read your book and he said whatever and last year Dick Snyder who was chairman of Simon Schuster I got an invitation 
honoring Charlie Haywood. I didn't even remember his name when I met him. He said, we met on the plane. So when I wanted to establish a relationship between Neve, so it wasn't just boy meets girl, something, boom, he had never forgotten her, and he had looked for her. So I think that gave validity to the fact that the relationship develops in a week. Mary Higgins Clark, when I was reading your biography, I noticed that it struck me that the character of Kitty reminded me a lot of you. In a crazy way, a couple of years ago, I took writing lessons again. I take writing and piano lessons every 12 or 15 years, you see. And I started writing with a friend of mine. Actually, she's more Kitty because she works, you know, she volunteers in the museum. She's volunteers driving people. She's whatever. But we were riding, and they gave me a miserable nag. And the darn thing ate all the junk food along the way and then (laughs) bolted to go back. And I went down a rocky incline. And uh, that dawn thing was slipping and sliding, and I all I would think I could think of was people like uh, Cole Porter, whose legs were crushed, George Patton's wife, who was thrown. Everybody who ever fell off a horse was running through my mind when that miserable nag was racing down. But I thought I want to put the body up there, so wouldn't it be interesting if Kitty finds it? And you know how you get an impression of something. She had an impression of. Of course, plastic hit her face, and she had an impression of a hand. But when you're thrown from a horse, when it gets back to the stable, you don't think. But then when you see your your jogging suit and you see a hand growing out of it, you know you've got to go back and look. But yeah, Kitty was a, a bit me, and she's also a, a bit... Evelyn was a good friend. Of course, Evelyn's husband resented terribly the fact that he was bumped off. He said, thanks a lot. I gather she's a widow. He said, I thought you liked me, Mary. <laughs> you have a film deal with France? Yeah, it's a conglomerate of French and English producers. And we just actually signed. I mean, we've been talking it for six months, but you know what these contracts are. They go back and forth between the lawyers and the agents, back and forth. But we just signed uh, the other day in the Polo Lounge, which I think is very chic, you know? When you're from the Bronx and you're sitting signing a movie contract in the Polo Lounge, you you think, oh, isn't this grand? You know, what will the kids at home say? But it's for A Cry in the Night, and it's for Weep No More, My Lady. And it's for two novellas that I wrote. So we have a four-picture deal with them. And one of my daughters will star in A Cry in the Night. She is uh, Carol, who was an actress. And she was my image for Jenny in that book. So I've always kind of held it for her. I I said, I know she can do it. And she's a good actress. And she is Jenny. Now, you mentioned before you had written for the possibility of doing an ongoing series. What other work with Hollywood or television have you done? Well, I gave them four ideas, none of which were used and all of which I have developed myself, and now I'm selling to someone else, you know, but that that showbiz. But actually, two of the movies were feature films, two of the books, Children and Stranger were feature films, then Still Watch and... The Cradle Will Fall with CBS Movies of the Week. So they've all made their way into film. You recently signed this um, a $10 million deal. $10.1? Let's not forget $100,000. Maybe, <laughs> maybe you're rich enough, Jim. I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> how did that come about? And when you saw the figures, how did you... Well, the way it came about is my agent said, this is a very good year to get some good advance money because last year was a good tax year. And he said, it certainly isn't going to last. It's been the most favorable one in years. And I had jokingly said to a publisher I know, if I ever 
leave Simon and Schuster, it's for you. Well, but I was joking because Simon and Schuster has been wonderful to me, and I do believe in dancing with the fellow who brung me. They bought me and made me uh, a success. But he and another publisher invited me out to lunch, and they say, Mary, is it true you're disenchanted with Simon and Schuster? And I said, oh, God, no, no. So we laughed and joked, and they said, well, now it'll be all over town that we, we, you've been out to lunch with us, and Simon and Schuster will get nervous. And then serious talk started about, actually, another publisher offered me more than that. But again, you can get very greedy. My relationship with Michael Corder and what he does to my books is so invaluable that I was perfectly thrilled with that contract that I signed. But you know, it was funny. I got a big, big advance. That was part of the idea to get cash. And my accountant phoned and said, congratulations, Mary, the money is in the bank. It was a couple of million bucks. That's a lot of money, right? I was due at a radio station to do an interview, and I realized I had $2. I ran around to the same bank with my card because it was after 3 o'clock. You know what came up? No funds available. <laughs> <laughs> I ran back to my apartment. I borrowed 10 bucks from the doorman to go to my interview. <laughs> so what are you going to do? There are some of us who are not supposed to live in luxury. We're supposed to live on the thin edge of of feeling broke. How, how many books is that for? Four books and a collection, an anthology. That's the $100,000, and that will come out in December. That's called the Anastasia Syndrome. That's two novellas, two short stories. All of them have been published in magazines, and they're all suspense, and then Anastasia is a short novel, which I have in the typewriter right now. What magazines did you, did you write these for? Well, Women's Day, a couple of years ago asked me to do a Christmas memoir, and I did it. And they liked it a lot, and they said, would you consider doing a short story for us for next Christmas? And I had not written a short story in years. I used to write a lot of them. found that I absolutely loved doing it. That one is called The Lost Angel. In fact, there's a film deal pending on that one uh, for, for next Christmas for a two-hour movie. And then they said, would you do another one? And I had an idea for one, and that was called Terror Strikes the Class Reunion where a gal goes, a young teacher goes back, and somebody, when she's only 30 now, and the fellow is 22 or 3, and he kidnaps her. He's always had a crush on her and fantasized being married to her. And that's, that's a pretty nice story. That's just sold to the French English. And then they ask for another and another. So I've started doing short stories. Then Lucky Day, we did a collection called Murder in Manhattan, which I see that you have here. Uh, nine of us who meet on the first Tuesday of every month just to talk mystery. We were asked to do a, an anthology. And I had an idea for a short story, so I'd done that one, and then Ladies Home Journal picked that up. You, you also worked on part of a round-robin novel. I think that's very, very strange. Well, I actually only did the prologue and the epilogue. We had been on a mystery cruise, and you know they have a basic plot for the mystery cruise, and you're all suspects. And we were asked by a publisher to do a continuing. And I said, I don't have a continuing character. I don't have a detective. So I'll do the prologue and the epilogue. But I said, look, I have a great idea. We're all members of the Mystery Writers of America. The advance was $10,000. We're not going to make that much. Let's give it to the Literacy Volunteers of New York. Let's be the first writer's organization to donate a royalty check. And we did that, so it meant a lot to them. 
and the the case of the Caribbean blues was sort of fun. It was uh, it was a spoof, but I simply did the opening and the close of it, and it really sold an awful lot of of copies. Let's see, Greg McDonald is in it. Warren Murphy, he does the Destroyer series. Uh, Molly Cochran. Max Allen Collins, who was a very good writer. Yeah, we were all on the mystery cruise, you see, together, down to uh, through the Caribbean. And it, it was a lot of fun doing it. Now, I now have a continuing character that I use in short stories. So if I ever do that again, it'll Elvira and Willie will be part of the, uh, the sleuths. A couple questions I'd like to ask you about the mystery field in, in a broader sense. Uh, do you sense any particular trend or direction in the field today? The direction is that we're being taken seriously. You know, there was a time when mystery suspense was considered penny dreadful kind of thing. And in fact, the story that we used to tell at the Mystery Writers' Annual Dinner was the writer who was, and this did happen, was asked, what do you do? And he said, I'm a writer. Oh, what do you write? I write mysteries. Pause. Oh, I only read good books. <laughs> that used to be the feeling about mysteries. And in fact, three of us 10 years ago were on the Today Show, and Tom Brokow said it was a publisher, and Brian Garfield, who was a screenwriter and writer, and myself. And I had just brought out A Stranger is Watching, which opens with someone watch watching the Today Show. And he said uh, on air, he said, you know, a lot of people have tried to get on my show by writing me into their books. And I said, well, I just wanted to make you a star. <laughs> and then he said, I just want you three to know I neither read nor enjoy mysteries. So Otto Penzel, the publisher, said, we consider that a case of arrested development. And he said, well, you three certainly know how to get invited back, don't you? But actually, we are being considered good, good writers now, not just lucky people or big sellers but uh, as you know there are a lot and I, I don't I think I tell a good story but there are fine writers in the mystery field well name a few well John Le Carre that's the mystery field right sure. Tom Clancy has come booming on to the field I mean nobody wants to publish the same time he did last year he knows me out of number one by coming out <laughs> the same week forget it uh Oh, there are so many. P.D. James, I think, is a wonderful writer. I think Dick Francis tells a terrific story, absolutely wonderful story. Scott Turow, Thomas Harris, Jonathan Kellerman. Uh, uh, the list could go on indefinitely. There are Ruth Rendell. She's an English writer who is not as well known here, but she is a terrific writer. There are plenty of people who really tell wonderful stories. And what about the organization, MWA? Are you a past president of that? Yes, I was 1987 president of the Mystery Writers of America. There are over 2,000 of us. We have the active members. Those are people who have already sold. We have associate members. Those are the editors, the agents, the publicity people. And then we have the, uh, what's the third category? Associate, active. The the new members are the ones who are writing mysteries, want to write mysteries, and want to be able to join. Affiliates. And the thing is, anybody can join it. The only thing is, unless you are an active member, you cannot vote. But other than that, you have all the rights of membership, and you get the TTD, which is the third degree, every month. And it's very good, because if you want to be a writer, particularly in one field, you should know what's going on. The third degree shows uh, who's buying what, 
what uh, we'll give a sample contract. We'll tell you what rights you should do. We'll say there's a new mystery line at such and such a press. You will have an interview with an editor who says, this is what I'm looking for. Or we've had enough of this. You know, if you're thinking of writing it, I'm telling you, the field is glutted with this kind of story. And I think if you're serious about writing, you should be in on that. But there's been a lot of turmoil in the field, and there are now a couple of schismatic organizations, if you want to call it, the American Crime Writers League, the Private Eye Writers of America. What's going on? That's always been. The Private Eye, many, many, many of them are mystery writers. Mm -hmm. And it's just that they, their interest is the Private Eye part of it. I mean, they meet for lunch just to talk Private Eye. It's not, you know, it's a kind of a case of in my father's home, there are many mansions. Most of them, are 90% uh, of them are members of the Mystery Writers, but it's just a case of having a chance to talk your own special field. Some of us just uh, started something called Malice Domestic for the kind of mystery that we write. Uh, Charlotte McLeod, Elizabeth Peters, uh, a bunch of us. And that's not in violation of the Mystery Writers. I wouldn't do it if it were. But our kind of mystery, where we don't have the excessive sex, we don't have the violence, and many of uh, the kind of writer that I am, and the fans of that, we were just in Washington. And they gave Agathas for the best short story of last year, the best novel, and the Agathas are teapots. Oh, <laughs> Who won them? Uh, Robert Barnard won for the best short story. Was it Carolyn Jones who ran, won for the best novel? I'm pretty sure. Yeah. In fact, she won two awards. So the, the idea is that people who do malice domestic, as we do. Don't you feel there's a, a contradiction in terms or a contradiction in concept to write a story about someone having his uh, head bashed in or a woman having her throat cut, leading to her obvious and immediate death, and say, but I don't write about violence? I write about the death that has occurred. You don't see anyone dead. She was found. The mother, in this case, was found in the park. And the husband, looking at it, does not see gore. She still looked like a fashion plate. The red at her throat looked like a scarf, denial. I don't think that's gory. I mean, if you're going to write a mystery, in Ethel's case, when we, it opens with poor old Ethel stuck between the spare tire and the suitcases yes. in the trunk. Yes. But it's not gory. <laughs> you know, the last, that last sentence was the last one she ever got to spit out. But I think when it's off camera, you can write about anything. I just deplore, for myself, the excessive violence. What's next in store for Mary Higgins Clark? Well, I'm finishing Anastasia, which is fun to do. I really am enjoying that. But because part of it is set in the 17th century, I have to dive into research with every time I have a sliding back because the gal doesn't realize she is carrying a murderess from the 17th century. She's become a split personality. And uh, it's sort of fun. It's different for me, but it's fun. But last year at the Crime Writers Congress, we had an FBI manager talk. And he was talking about the personal ads. And he said, sure, nice people meet nice people. Mature man likes to walk on the beach, you know, that kind of thing. Seeks woman who loves the sound of the ocean, that kind of stuff. But he said it is also a mecca for the Ted Bundys. And he showed pictures of young girls who had been murdered by the same one. They answered ads, or he answered their ads. And he had killed a number of girls. And he had pictures of them just before this bird shot them. And it just walked through my head. Love's music loves to dance, where a gal answers an ad and disappears. 
We've been talking with Mary Higgins Clark, whose most recent novel is While My Pretty One Sleeps. And the other books, I would assume, are all in print at this time, right? Yeah, thank God they all stay in print. They reprint it every three months. Except for George Washington. Oh, my poor darling George Washington sits alone on my shelf, and I won't even lend him out because I don't get it back. Then we'd be down to three copies. You've been listening to an interview with Mary Higgins Clark, who died on January 31st, 2020, at the age of 92, recorded May 24th, 1989, during her tour for her novel, While My Pretty One Sleeps. Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com. You can listen to other interviews, either as Radio Walensky podcasts or in the archives pages of bookwaves.com. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky podcast. 